Thank you all for coming. Well, uh, good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute Book Forum on Too Big to Jail. Before we get started, I'd like to ask that you all at least silence your cell phones, if not turn them off. Thank you. We appreciate it. I'd also start, like to start by thanking both Mr. Copeland and Professor Garrett for taking the time and trains necessary to be here with us today. We do appreciate it. Over the last decade, prosecutors have increasingly turned to resolve investigations into corporate wrongdoing with contracts instead of criminal charges. In return for a corporate defendant paying millions and occasionally billions of dollars to the government and promising to make cultural reforms, prosecutors agreed to forgo or delay trial. Unlike plea bargains or civil consent decrees, corporate prosecution agreements are subject to minimal judicial oversight, and the detail details of these agreements are rarely made public. In part because of that opacity, while these agreements have been the subject of substantial criticism uh, from across the political spectrum, they haven't been the subject of much substantial research until quite recently. We're fortunate today to be joined by two experts in this field, each of whom has devoted considerable attention to the problems posed by corporate prosecutions. And I'd like to, um, first up will be Professor Garrett, who is the Woodruff Morgan Professor of Law and the author. Uh, this book is the result of a nearly decade-long project by Professor Garrett uh, to build a comprehensive database of all corporate prosecution agreements and convictions since the early 2000s. Uh, in a service to the community, Professor Garrett has made this database available online, along with, I believe, uh, 2,000 conviction agreements about, as, and the original documents that were obtained in FOIA requests. If you've read any of the research in this area, you've almost certainly read a paper that, if not written by Professor Garrett, cites his database. It's really the only material out there, and we appreciate that. Uh, this is Professor Garrett's second book. His first, Convicting the Innocent, took a similarly data-driven approach to DNA exonerations, and it won both the ABA Silver Gavel Award and the Constitutional Commentary Award. Following Professor Garrett's remarks, we'll have the chance to hear from James Copeland. Mr. Copeland is the senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and director of its Center for Legal Policy. Mr. Copeland has a considerable background in business as well as law. He has a JD MBA from Yale and a master's from LSC. Prior to joining the Manhattan Institute, he was a consultant at McKinsey & Co. and he served on the board of numerous private and public foundations. He's twice been named to the National Association of Corporate Directors list of the 100 most influential individuals in corporate governance and his work is regularly cited by the New York Times, Washington Post, The Economist, and The Wall Street Journal. He's also a frequent guest on national news shows, including regular appearances on both Fox and MSNBC. Uh, a dominant theme in Mr. Copeland's work is identifying the costs and complications of applying criminal law to corporations. His most recently ad addressed the problem of NPAs and DPAs in a 2014 report released by the Manhattan Institute titled, The Shadow Lengthens, The Continuing Threat of Regulation by Prosecution, and I strongly recommend that to anyone interested in the field, and I think there are copies available in the hall. Before turning over the mic to Professor Garrett, I just want to take a moment to uh, shamelessly plug this book. It's very, very good. The amount of research that's presented here, uh, I'd say the last 100 pages are the appendix and notes. Uh, it, there's an astonishing amount of information in here, and it never slows the book down. Uh, it doesn't feel like you're reading a homework assignment. I think I learned something on every single page, including the fact that ostriches can run at 40 miles an hour. Uh, I, I don't know why that's in a business book, but it's in a business law book, and it's great. And thank you very much, Professor Garrett. <laughs> well, thank you so much. What I'd like to do for 20, 25 minutes is give you a kind of a walking tour of, of my book. And my book begins with the sentences, I know what this is about. I've been expecting you. 
kind of a James Bond movie type line. This is the cover of the book, and this is the, uh, the person who uttered those lines. I've been expecting you. This was in 2006 when German police, German law enforcement came to his house knocking on the door. He knew they were coming. He worked at Siemens, and I dubbed him the banker as he dubbed himself, but that was kind of a joke name. He was really doing accounting for a telecommunications subdivision at Siemens, and what he was banking were, were tens and hundreds of millions of dollars in bribes that were being paid to secure contracts around the world. Any corporate crime starts with a person, and I, I, I'll be returning to this case as an introduction to the complexities and many wrinkles of corporate prosecution. So I'd like to give you a sense of what a case is like and, and then what this larger data that I've collected uh, can tell us about how corpora corporations are prosecuted and how the, the fundamental practice of corporate prosecutions has shifted so remarkably over the last 10 years and even just in the last five years. The, the banker has spoken a lot about his role in the case, and so we have, in part because of that, we, we know a fair amount about what was happening. There, there are other reasons we know a lot about what was happening at Siemens. Uh, but he, he described how they knew that under German law you weren't supposed to be paying bribes around the world, but he, he thought that it was essential to the company's success and that the company wouldn't be able to do its work if they didn't uh, pay these bribes. Now, it, it may have been these authorities in Munich that knocked on his door, but the investigation quickly shifted to the United States. We are now the center for many multinational corporate prosecutions. The investigation lasted for several years. These cases aren't resolved quickly, like street crime cases might sometimes be. And investigators, including uh, lawyers at a New York law firm that Siemens hired to investigate itself, to turn itself in, uncovered over a billion dollars in bribes paid all around, all around the world for all, all sorts of different projects, ranging from identity cards to subway systems. Uh, the SEC described it, the DOJ described it as the biggest foreign bribery case they had yet seen. And it remains the biggest bribery case in terms of dollars paid around the world that has ever been prosecuted in the United States. Uh, the company pleaded guilty. It, it was convicted. And most criminal cases in the US are resolved through plea bargains. This company didn't get one of these deferred and non-prosecution agreements that I'll talk about in a couple of minutes. The plea agreement was long, and so I, I fit it on one slide by using a word art. Uh, the word art isn't that helpful, except that you can get a sense that it's describing different governments and different payments. There was a long section describing basically what happened at Siemens, a statement of facts. It didn't name particular individuals by name, but it described sort of the broad outlines of what the charged conduct was. And then there were terms having to do with payments of fines, monitoring compliance, changes that Siemens would make in response to this prosecution. The guilty plea was entered in front of a judge here in Washington, DC, just down the street at the federal courthouse. There was a hearing. Uh, the company had to waive its rights, which is always a little bit awkward because the lawyers basically have to explain, okay, we represent the company. Uh, we understand that the company has rights and we, we agree to waive the company's right to a, a trial and a right to a speedy trial and a right to present evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. So that the lawyers presented the waiver of those rights and the company pleaded guilty. The judge in the case actually had some questions about the fine since the judge noted that, wait a minute, under the sentencing guidelines, this is a fine that could be up to $2.7 billion. Why is it only about $450 million? 
Prosecutors cited to Siemens extraordinary cooperation in spending so much time and money investigating itself. Uh, there was also the fact that another large chunk of money was being paid to the Securities and Exchange Commission, $350 million. And really half the fine, $800 million, was paid to the German investigators who had begun the investigation. And after all, Siemens is a German company. So this is sort of a cooperative uh, binational criminal investigation. The fine wasn't all, though. The prosecutor said, look, the, we're, we're not just trying to find this company. We'd like to reform it. The company has promised to make extraordinary changes to make sure that this type of bribery doesn't recur. They've agreed to corporate monitoring for four years. And as I'll tell you in a few minutes, Siemens actually was so happy with the monitoring that they agreed to continue the monitors even longer. Uh, we're, we're going to establish all sorts of new compliance programs. And we, as the company, agree to cooperate in any investigations of wrongdoing by our employees. Whatever you need, we'll help you uh, figure out who did what and when. And so it was a quite detailed plea agreement. The company was agreeing to not just pay a fine in the present, but to continue to cooperate and report to prosecutors in the future. Prosecutors would then be hearing over several years what the company was doing and whether it was adopting recommendations of its monitor. The company would, in, fact, in effect, be on, on probation for four years. So here's how this case fits into the top 20 biggest corporate fines in terms of uh, fine amounts through 2012, but it's 2014. It, it would be further down the list today. In fact, uh, uh, just you know, a couple weeks ago, Credit Suisse paid a, a record multi-billion dollar fine. BNP Paribas will be sentenced, uh, assuming all goes according to plan this Friday. That will be at the top of the list involving many, many billions of dollars. Uh, but this, this was the largest foreign bribery case of all time. And when you look down this list, it's, the type isn't that large. But what you see is you see a lot of foreign companies in the biggest cases over the last decade. You see many cases involving pharmaceutical prosecutions, antitrust, some fraud cases, a couple of FCPA cases. There are certain crimes which seem to be producing the big blockbuster cases. This chart shows it in a different way. The, the Economist ran a version of this earlier this fall. Maybe some of you uh, saw the story they did about criminalizing the US economy. Although really, it should be the global economy, because many of the biggest billion dollar cases involve multinational companies doing, doing work and engaging in violations all, all around the world. Uh, certainly, what, what emerges from this presentation of my data is that corporate fines have skyrocketed, particularly in the last few years. And these include penalties, so all sorts of money paid to prosecutors. In some cases, the uh, money payment isn't characterized as a fine, it's a forfeiture, or it's restitution paid to compensate victims. However it's characterized, this is the money paid to prosecutors. And you didn't see billion-dollar cases uh, before 2009. Uh, in fact, in 2009, there's a big purple block there, which represents the Siemens case. But there's a much bigger orange block, which represents a $1.2 billion fine paid in a case involving a subsidiary of Pfizer. There are a number of big pharmaceutical cases like that in, in the last few years. But what this also shows, it's, you, you have to look beyond just the ag aggregate penalties in any given year. You see a lot of variation there between, you know, ranging year to year uh, as to, well, what is the type of crime that's dominating that particular year's fines? It's, in some years, it's environmental. In some years, it's foreign bribery. In some years, it's a, uh, it's a pharmaceutical case. Some things are somewhat steady. There's quite steady antitrust enforcement, for example, from year to year to year. Uh, 
but FCPA foreign bribery cases, those exploded in importance in just the last decade. Uh, the pharmaceutical cases, they, they've absolutely grown in importance in the last half decade. And that the billion dollar fines that are now the new normal, often the, these blocks of color represent just a single case in that year. A handful of blockbuster cases are really driving this explosion in fines. 2013, for example, that was a remarkable year for, for corporate criminal penalties. Mostly that's because of the fine BP paid out of the Gulf spill prosecution. That's that big red, red block in 2013. 2014 is an enormously pink year, and that will be assuming, that's really a tentative pink, assuming the BNP Paribas sentencing goes uh, as planned and it pays the fines described in the guilty plea entered, uh, that then, then there will be, 2014 will be a truly remarkable year with the largest ever sanctions violation penalty paid by a bank. Uh, and so these blockbuster cases drive the news coverage, but there hasn't been an increase in the numbers of corporations prosecuted. And there's enormous variation in the size of these cases and in the particular industries and crimes that happen to be prominent in a given year. Some have asked, why, why is it that so many of these cases involve foreign companies like, like the, the Siemens company that I, I began by talking about? It is absolutely true that average fines paid by foreign companies are larger. And I, I, I get asked by, by journalists in France and in Switzerland and Germany, you know, why are our companies being targeted? Uh, you, you, I control by crime and by size of company using whether it's public or not as a proxy. There's still a big difference if it's a foreign company. That still doesn't really explain this. It could be that foreign companies are worse violators. And when you look at the size of the sanctions violations in the BNP case, there hadn't been a sanctions case of that size that had ever come to US prosecutors' attention before. Uh, it could also be that foreign companies didn't know in the past how to cooperate with US prosecutors. Basically, how is this regime working in the US? Uh, perhaps over time, as they've grown accustomed to what US prosecutors are up to, or as they've hired US law firms, uh, they've been able to receive the type of more lenient agreements that their domestic counterparts were receiving. Uh, it, it, it's hard to say just from reported outcomes in cases where there was a fine. This just gives a sense of the crimes where the biggest cases tend to fall. Uh, and similar to that chart that I showed you, which had nicer colors, antitrust, foreign bribery, pharmaceuticals, uh, banking cases involving money laundering related violations, securities fraud, those tend to be the bigger cases. Um, this is also to show that the money denoted as a fine is just the beginning. In the deferred and non-prosecution agreements, for example, far more money was paid to regulators in parallel agreements accompanying the agreement that prosecutors entered. Quite a bit of money that we, we know of was paid in private suits, uh, but private settlements are not always made public. It's not always possible to know how much a derivative lawsuit settled for, for example. And quite a bit of money was paid through restitution forfeiture, money that may make its way to victims, but isn't really a penalty for the crime. So uh, the rise of deferred and non-prosecution agreements. The, the Siemens guilty plea was filed in court. The company has a criminal record, so do three of its subsidiaries. There was a judge there that read the agreement, asked questions about it, and the case was, was concluded. Non-prosecution agreements are never filed in a court. It's a private agreement between the parties. 
The prosecutors say, we're not going to prosecute you, assuming you pay fines and comply with these terms. Uh, deferred prosecution agreements are filed in court, but what is filed in court is a tolling of the Speedy Trial Act. Basically, we agree to let this case sit on the judge's docket, assuming you pay the fine and comply with the terms. We dismiss the case from the judge's docket. Nothing ever happens. There is no indictment. There is no conviction. Uh, there is no criminal record. What has been really interesting to watch over the last decade is the rise of these agreements. I started tracking them early on in my teaching career, starting in around 2006. At that point, there'd only been a few dozen of these things. I could stack them in a little pile on my desk and read them all. Uh, what we've seen since is that the lion's share of the biggest corporate criminal prosecutions involving public companies have tended to involve these deferred and non-prosecution agreements. Uh, the numbers aren't that great. Many, many dozens more companies are convicted every year, but those cases tend to be small mom and pop type cases, uh, minor environmental law violations or billing fraud violations. Uh, the biggest cases involving the public companies, the, re the really important ones that are of public interest have disproportionately been these deferred and non-prosecution agreements. Here's a chart showing the public companies. And you see how increasingly, starting in 2005, for the, in most years, most of the public companies prosecuted are receiving these deferred and non-prosecution agreements as opposed to plea agreements where there's a, a conviction. Why the change? Well, one part of the change was a new approach announced in 2003 by the Department of Justice. And there's some genesis of this in an earlier memo written by Eric Holder when he was Deputy Attorney General. Um, some of the change had to do with the fallout of the Arthur Anderson prosecution, which I describe in some detail in, in my book. It's a totally fascinating case and a fascinating criminal trial. Uh, these nine factors are assigned no particular weight, but prosecutors are basically told you need to think about it when you're prosecuting a company. Is it really a good idea to, to pursue a conviction? Is it enough to just prosecute the employees? How serious was the wrongdoing? Did it reach the highest levels? And is this company reporting it to you? Corporate crime may, may never come to anyone's attention unless someone reports it. How good is the company's compliance? Is it promising to fix its compliance? And would a conviction or a prosecution destroy the company? Would that put innocent employees out of work? Would it affect innocent uh, shareholders? Would a civil fine be enough? So a whole family of these factors to be weighed in no particular order or weight. Uh, the sentencing guidelines emphasize some similar things, and they've been around longer. They emphasize compliance and whether higher-ups tolerated the conduct. And then there's a question, well, do prosecutors follow those factors? To what degree do they honor those factors or care about them? It, you would think that compliance would be really important in these prosecution agreements, given how that's, you know, a whole set of those factors revolve around remedies and compliance. Most of the agreements that I read sort of say general stuff about due diligence and adopt some effective compliance, adopt some best practices. Well, is the company supposed to actually review its compliance and do audits? You would think if the prosecutors really cared about that, that it would be standard for such things to be required. Not so much. There are you know, a minority of agreements, a small minority, where prosecutors say, we want you to actually be pay attention to risks, audit the compliance, be sure it's actually working. That's what you'd, you'd, you'd hope that companies that actually have very good, carefully audited compliance would receive special credit for that. It's not clear that's happening. And when you look at the terms of these agreements, these are just the deferred and non-prosecution agreements. Most of the agreements do involve compliance requirements. 
but there is a surprising number in that second sort of more pink column where no compliance reforms are imposed by prosecutors at all, and what, what is going on in those cases. It's an even smaller number in black there in which auditing compliance is required. So please do some compliance, but we don't want you to check on it or see how it's working. Uh, sometimes the company is sort of given credit for compliance that was already adopted, or regulators were, were supervising compliance. Some smaller number of these agreements also ask, ask that the governance of the company be changed. Hire a chief compliance officer uh, that will, will report to the board. Hire new compliance positions. Hire other new employees to sort of shape up compliance. Sometimes with real detail, for the most part, not so much. And then in a minority of these cases, corporate monitors are imposed. Independent figures who are supposed to supervise all this compliance. Let's talk about those monitors. In the Siemens case, there are two monitors. They wanted to have a monitor that was familiar with German corporate law and German finance, and they, they hired a German, fi a German finance minister, an extremely prominent person, uh, Dr. Theo Weigel. Uh, Joe Warren uh, from Gibson Dunn here in Washington, D.C. was the, the American counterpart. Uh, both of the monitors uh, talked to me when I was working on this book, and it was, it was really fascinating for me to hear about their work. Uh, frankly, we don't typically hear anything about what monitors are doing or what is happening during the implementation of a corporate prosecution agreement. Uh, the Siemens company, though, is maybe the exception to that typical rule. They're quite proud of the work that the monitors did and feel like it did very good things for their company. And the monitors described it being an extremely labor-intensive and enjoyable um, many years that they were doing this work. In fact, that um, Dr. Weigel was telling me how Siemens never failed to approve any of his recommendations, of which there were many initially. They gave him kind of the office where you first walk into the headquarters just to show how important the monitor was. And if you read the translated versions of the CEO's speeches, he will hail the work of the monitor. Thank you so much for all the work that you've been doing to improve Siemens. Most companies don't talk that way about the aftermath of being criminally prosecuted. Um, maybe there was a metamorphosis at Siemens, and I tried to find a German translation uh, of metamorphosis. Uh, they, they did cashier most of the top leadership of the company. They felt that this global bribery scheme was deeply embarrassing. They wanted to, to basically rebuild the company from the top down. New CEO, all the top positions were replaced. Much of the leadership was replaced. And interestingly, the company is nothing short of a proselytizer on the subject of good business. They are, have been entering integrity packs along with uh, anti-compliance officers in different countries that they do business in. Um, and the monitors have described how it's just a totally different company. Doing compliance work is considered to be a prestigious job in the company, a pathway to future promotions, not sort of a, a backwater. Um, if all that is true, then maybe this, this corporate prosecution is a, an enormous success story, and prosecutors were right to focus on compliance and not just imposing the biggest fine possible. Uh, it's impossible to know from the outside, but uh, but it was fascinating for me to get to talk to some people, at least, who did some work on the inside. Then the question is, well, you know, so the company has changed and the company has paid fines. How about employees? Typically, in these deferred and non-prosecution agreements, employees are, are not prosecuted. I, I talk in the book about some of the challenges prosecutors face in this regard, and it's about 35% of the cases where employees are charged. Uh, this is also updated data. Uh, through through the, the this year or through what's happened so far this year, 
And those are just in individuals charged. Even fewer end up uh, getting convicted and serving any jail time. In white-collar cases, prosecutors have higher loss rates than they do in maybe more straightforward street crime type cases. Plenty of these cases have resulted in dismissals, acquittals, even deferred prosecution agreements for executives. In this particular case, the Siemens case, then Senator Arlen Specter gave speeches on the floor of Congress saying, this is the biggest foreign bribery case ever. Someone must have paid the bribes. Why isn't anyone being prosecuted? And unfortunately, uh, that wasn't good news for the banker. The banker himself was convicted. He received probation in exchange for all of his cooperation. Um, and perhaps in response to Specter's speeches, US prosecutors then did announce uh, several indictments in this case, eight different indictments in 2011. Uh, it didn't sound like there was any realistic possibility that any of those individuals would be extradited to the US. And nothing has happened in those cases since, presumably because all of those individuals are in countries that don't have extradition agreements. Uh, perhaps that it's still a punishment that they can't easily travel to countries that do extradite to the US. I don't know whether anything will ever happen in those cases. Uh, so what are the lessons from all of this for companies? They're complicated lessons for companies. It depends on which group of prosecutors. It depends on what type of agreement is anticipated. And there's a deeper question. If Do prosecutors prize compliance? If you're a company and want to show that that you are trying to stay on the right side of the law, what are you, what are you supposed to do? Uh, if prosecutors don't necessarily insist on compliance being audited, should you audit it anyway to make sure that it's working so that you can show you have top of the line compliance? But are there metrics for, for doing so? And what incentives are there to collect data on your compliance if you might just uncover more violations which could lead you to uh, be on the receiving end of a, of a corporate prosecution? And then for individuals, as an individual, should you feel like, well, the company will protect me? Individuals don't always get prosecuted in these cases. In fact, they often do not. Maybe the company will have incentives to throw individuals under the bus, but it doesn't happen that often. That that's, wouldn't be the message that prosecutors would want to be sending in these cases. The banker feeling embittered by the fact that he and some middle managers ended up getting prosecuted in Germany, but no one higher up. He said the 11th commandment is, don't get caught. And uh, I'll end now with, at the place where I, where I end the book, which is the, this whole practice of corporate prosecutions has been reinvented over the last decade in the US. We are now a, a global center of these multinational cases. We are prosecuting corporate crime in a way that we haven't before and that other countries around the world had not done before. Other countries are starting to emulate the US approach, including in the UK, where they, where they now do deferred prosecution agreements. They passed a bribery act modeled on the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And there, I just want to highlight that, just based on this overview description, there are important questions about whether we are doing this the right way and whether the US approach is worthy of imitation, much less being continued. These cases involve conduct and corporations that are incredibly important to the US economy and to the world economy. I titled the book Too Big to Jail, but companies can't literally be put in jail. I, I do think that corporate prosecutions, though, uh, whether you think that there are too many or too few, are too important to fail. They're too important to be brought in an ad hoc kind of casual way. And so I, I, I hope that our discussion today and, and maybe even the book will encourage people to, to consider more carefully the stakes in these corporate prosecutions. Thank you so much.
Well, thank you. Thank you, Professor Garrett, and thanks for the Cato Institute uh, for having me here uh, to respond and discuss this. Um, you know, I've, I've written, I was counting up, I guess I've written or co-authored or authored four different reports in the last four years, plus edited and published another on this subject. So it is something that I'm particularly interested in. And I just wanted to say that Professor Garrett's website, uh, as was noted, is, is, is such an invaluable resource here. And his book is also going to be an invaluable resource as well. I heartily recommend it. Um, I certainly have some disagreement with some of the normative gloss in the book, which didn't necessarily come through today in the in, in the in the presentation. Uh, but but it's 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 a treasure trove of of, of resource, and I, I think I'll flesh out uh, in my talk some of the the, the areas of possible disagreement uh, that that Professor Garrett and I have here. It's interesting. He started with Siemens. Uh, I've I've spoken to the the new general counsel about this, and it one of the collateral consequences here has affected me because because Siemens moved its U.S. Head headquarters from White Plains down to uh, down here to Washington, D.C. in response to this, and, and because my wife is, is a college counselor and head of the English department at the German International School in White Plains uh, in New York, um, you know, that's, that certainly had an effect on her student body. Uh, that's a very minor collateral consequence, uh, but there are some major collateral consequences of, of the deferred prosecution, non-prosecution agreements that I've been studying, which, which are a subset of, of the total focus of Professor Garrett's work here, uh, but, but for large corporations uh, are, are, in fact, what is the new normal. Um, how strange is that in historic practice? Professor Garrett mentioned that this is historically new, and it is. Uh, for the first 204 years or so of U.S. history, there was never a deferred prosecution agreement or non-prosecution agreement of a, of a corporation. Um, they began in late 1992 or so under the, the, actually began under the first Bush administration, carried through the Clinton administration. In the first decade, there were 17 or 18, depending on how you're counting these. Um, in the last decade, uh, there have been over 300 of these. So, so a dramatic shift in terms of how the, the federal prosecutors are uh, dealing with large businesses. Um, I want to go through uh, four different areas of um, <clears throat> liability types of questions or responsibility types of questions that I think are, are interesting points uh, and, and areas of potential disagreement between me and Professor Garrett in terms of some of the things he talks about in his book. The first is liability itself. Um, and I, I think, uh, as he notes, uh, Too Big to Jail, it's a great book title. Um, but, but of course, corporations are not, it's not possible to jail corporations. And it's important to understand uh, that, that the U.S. is historically and currently uh, an outlier here. Um, some, some foreign countries don't have uh, corporate criminal liability at all, including Germany. I mean, maybe that's one of the reasons Siemens got in trouble. Uh, maybe, maybe not, but Germany's an advanced economy, functioning economy, without a principle of corporate uh, liability at all. Uh, in in Anglo-American practice, uh, going back to Blackstone, it was deemed that corporations, because they don't have a criminal intent, they don't have a criminal mind, a mens rea, generally were not presumed to be able to be criminals. That doesn't mean they can't be sanctioned by the state. It just means it would be a civil or administrative regulatory type of sanction instead of criminal. Uh, there are exceptions to that even then, traditionally around the area of public nuisance and, and uh, municipal corporations trying to clean up streets and, and, and ports and the things like this, uh, but, but really it's, it's about a 105-now-year-old practice of corporate criminal liability at all in the United States. Uh, the, the, the seminal case in 1909 was, was New York Central. Uh, the Supreme Court of the United States did not, in fact, uh, create 
criminal liability. All they did was say, well, Congress could create it uh, through its interstate commerce regulation. And a lot of what we now have as corporate criminal liability, in my view, is, 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 is sort of a, a steroid-type extension of, of, of this principle that's not necessarily been authorized by Congress, uh, but, but the courts have inferred uh, criminal liability where Congress hasn't spoken on the point. Uh, the second point is, is the jurisdictional question. And, and Professor Garrett talked a lot about the, the sort of foreign companies falling under the ambit of U.S. prosecution. I mean, that's unambiguously the case. It's, it's, it's clear that the U.S. is policing outside its borders and doing so very, very broadly uh, with, with relatively thin uh, reads of, 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 of jurisdiction in some cases. So the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act is, is uh, where a lot of this happens, what, what Siemens was, was caught up under. Um, but, but there are cases, and I've discussed it in some of my work, in which you have a foreign business uh, headquartered abroad paying bribes to foreign countries. And the only nexus to the United States uh, is, in some cases, it's a, it's a, it's a stock market listing, which is, which is arguably a, a, a reasonable listing, although the, the effect of using that as a jurisdictional hook for activities that occur completely out of U.S. borders is to create an incentive for delisting from U.S. exchanges, which is a trend we've seen over the last decade. Um, the other, uh, some of the other jurisdictional hooks can be even thinner. It can be an email that has gone through a U.S. router. It can be uh, a bank account that necessarily has to clear because there are dollar-denominated transactions that has to clear through U.S. banks ultimately for dollar-denominated transactions. These are extremely thin jurisdictional reads. Again, they don't really get tested uh, because the companies involved in these types of cases don't take them to court. Uh, but but it's, it's an extraordinary assertion of power. Um, the third uh, point is is sort of on the policy of some of these big cases anyway, and and uh, a chapter in his book focuses on um, some of these, in part on some of these off-label drug. Uh, sorts of, of prosecutions, non-prosecutions, customer integrity agreements, side non-prosecution agreements, and what have you. Billions of dollars on this. Um, what, what this involves, though, I mean, there's no question that there are clear FDA rules. They're not clear FDA rules, but there's no question there are, there are FDA rules on uh, the, what you can say about the use of a pharmaceutical proce uh, product uh, when that use has not been subjected to a full FDA uh, review. Um, but, but these are not illegal uses of, of the drugs. It would be very important to, to be clear. These are uses that get reimbursed through Medicare and Medicaid that are documented in the New England Journal of Medicine, documented in the medical literature, and there's a gag order on the corporations from being able to tell doctors about those uses uh, through their sales teams uh, for products because the FDA hasn't spent a billion dollars reviewing that use. I mean, so, so that's the regulatory issue here at play that, that, that's coming into play. Now, whether that's a good or bad policy question, policy answer, you know, is open to debate. I mean, I've argued for a safe harbor for truthful speech. I think lives are lost by muzzling corporate speech in this area. Uh, but, but, but some of the biggest dollar cases here are coming in with that sort of policy uh, and again, in generally in these cases, the individuals aren't, aren't going to jail at all. And in fact, courts have thrown out 
individual prosecutions on First Amendment grounds. They've thrown out individual prosecutions and, and, and said the prosecutorial misconduct was egregious, et cetera, et cetera. And we, we, I've documented some of this in some of my writing as well. The fourth uh, principle is just sort of a rule of law principle. I mean, a basic principle of criminal law is the rule of legality. Uh, you've got to sort of know something's criminal. You can't just sort of ex post facto come up with, with new crimes. And, and there are cases where, and this is, is part of the, the problem. I mean, I, I, again, this is not unique to the corporate context. This is arguably true in, in individual contexts too. Uh, but because these cases are so infrequently tried, you can get FCPA cases where arguably the statute creates a safe harbor uh, for the conduct. In other words, we're not, not, it may be illegal under the foreign law. It may be unsavory. Uh, but the sorts of, of walking around bribes that are being talked about, not the Siemens case, but, but certainly in some of these, uh, are, are, are ambiguous, but the company can't take it to trial. And so you've got safe harbors effectively becoming dead letter law, notwithstanding that Congress enacted them. So the, the other main concern I, I have in this area really comes to, to remedy and, and openness. And um, there's first an authority concern, a separation of powers concern. We, we've seen some of these dollar, some dollar figures coming in and uh, occasionally just getting used as effective piggy banks, um, allocating uh, monies. And this, this, this can be more egregious in the civil context, too, but these are often very parallel, where they're effectively allocating money uh, the way the prosecutor wants, and they're not go these aren't remediation types of expenses. Secondly, um, in terms of how these decisions are made, uh, and the professor talks about this some in his book, I mean, there's, there's potential conflicts of interest and public choice concerns here going on, uh, on on both sides of these negotiations. So you've got individuals who, by agreeing to comply and cooperate, potentially could be keeping themselves out of jail, uh, which is not necessarily, but, but what they're doing is paying the shareholders money out. Uh, to do so. And then on the, the flip side, you've got uh, the revolving door of the Justice Department where you're going to make a million dollars a year working on the other side of these transactions, uh, not transactions, the other side of these, these non-prosecution type negotiations when you get out of the Justice Department. So that's what you want to do. Uh, and, and that creates a strong incentive uh, for that type of I should Finally, uh, competence. Uh, what we effectively have are a lot of smart English majors with law degrees creating very extensive regulatory regimes, including over interest rates, the LIBOR investigations. You've got over, I mean, the Federal Reserve messes up interest rates all the time, and they've got economists doing this. And, and you've, you've got the single most important variable, notwithstanding that there, there, there was criminal behavior on the individual level going on at these banks, but you've got oversight over interest rates coming in through prosecutors, um, HSBC, some egregious, uh, arguably, uh, offenses that were, were brought there, but pulling out of foreign countries because that's the only way they can see that they could potentially comply with what's being asked of them by the U.S. government. So again, a foreign bank pulling out of foreign countries due to U.S. money laundering prosecutions. Um, and then, of course, uh, AIG, and this is not a federal case, but Elliot Spitzer coming after AIG. I, I cringed a little bit when I said, oh, the compliance officers are maybe getting promoted up. I mean, do we really want compliance officers running major international businesses? Because in the seven months after Hank Greenberg left AIG, they wrote more credit default swaps than they had in the prior seven years. And that's because they brought in a, a, a new leadership that was focused on compliance and, and making regulators and prosecutors happy. So the, the final point here is there's just no transparency and, and, and oversight here. And this is where Professor Garrett and I 
do agree a lot. Um, the new UK rules that, that came in uh, into effect this year, they were written into effect last year, have a very extensive judicial uh, oversight, transparency type regime. And, and here we've got these non-prosecution agreements uh, that don't ever see the court. And then the, the government at least asserts that these deferred prosecution agreements, it's, it's a speedy trial act review and no substantive review whatsoever. The agreements themselves determine that any breach is solely in the discretion of the prosecutor. So, so effectively, th there's not clear legislative oversight on the front end. Uh, there's not clear legislative oversight on the remedy. There's no judicial oversight. So you've got these prosecutors, again, English majors with law degrees, with, with major uh, regulatory sort of impact. And so we can talk about some of the potential fixes uh, as we get into Q&A if we want to. And that's where, at least on the procedural fixes, I think Professor Garrett and I have some agreements. On the substantive fixes, he may put me in the, the, the what he calls, I think, the abolitionists. I, I'm not arguing that we should abolish corporate criminal liability entirely, but, but some of my ideas actually are, are those he, he criticizes thusly. But, but again, I think this is a very important book, an important topic, and I'm really glad he's brought the public attention on this. Would you care to make a response? Well, I'd love for us all to talk, but I, um, I mean, I, I actually, you know, I, I, there's lots that one could say. There, there are plenty of federal criminal laws that many of us think are ill-advised. Uh, there are plenty of areas where we're not sure what the goals of corporate prosecutions are. And there are others where I think most people agree that there are quite serious offenses that should be taken seriously. Uh, earlier this fall, I was asked by a judge here in, in Washington, D.C., Judge Sullivan, to present myself as amicus and advise the judge of the judge's power to supervise a deferred and non-prosecution agreement. Uh, and the government's position was, was, was just that, that these agreements are filed in court, but the, they're only filed to delay the Speedy Trial Act, to delay the timing. These are timing agreements. A judge can't review the substance at all. I've, I told the judge that I thought the judge did have power to review the substance of the agreement. But I do think that these cases are too important to be filed out of court. That said, I don't know if anyone in this room thinks that just having a federal judge read the agreement is going to solve these problems. Judges are going to be deferential to any deal entered between parties, and, and there could be judges that do all sorts of unreasonable things uh, that, would be, that we wouldn't want the company to have to agree to or prosecutors to have to agree to. Uh, having someone independent read what an agreement says and have some more transparency I think would be a good thing. There, are, there is some legislation, since we are in DC, there's legislation that's been kicking around the hill for years to sort of improve transparency of deferred prosecution agreements, to limit the use of non-prosecution agreements. I'm not sure if some of those things can even be done for separation of powers reasons. Yeah. There's a real problem where you know prosecution, prosecutors, for lots of good reasons, have lots of discretion to decide how they uh, bring cases. And of course, I just wanted to note that I, you know, I, I may have presented some, some complicated and detailed data about corporate prosecutions that we know about. There's another aspect of this, which is sort of the whole dark matter aspect. And I, I do I emphasize in the book that we don't know about the corporate prosecutions that we don't know about. We don't know how often prosecutors decline cases. Are they declining cases that have no merit? Are they targeting companies and cases that are marginal and yet declining more serious cases which really do have merit? I think if prosecutors conclude that a company or a person is innocent, we understand why that shouldn't be made public, that they were even being investigated in the first place. We want innocent people's names to remain clear. Uh, 
but you know, you, you could imagine a situation for someone who likes data like me. I would love to know how many how many corporate referrals, how many corporate investigations were opened each year, and how many of them actually turned into cases. We have no idea whether prosecutors are being extremely picky about the few cases that they bring each year, or whether they're basically prosecuting companies at the drop of a dime and they rarely decline cases at all. Uh, and that's that's a, a question that you just can't answer, like so many other things having to do with the discretion and power of prosecutors in this country. We, we can't get a good empirical grasp on it. And it's frustrating for researchers, and it's 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 terrifying for companies. So I'll start with the. Uh it's moderator's privilege to ask a question while we're on the subject of prosecutorial uh, discretion. In one chapter in your book, you go quite into detail about uh, the practices under the Thompson Memorandum, where companies are effectively uh, bullied into not funding their employees' legal defenses, or they tell their employees, unless you cooperate, we're not going to fund your legal defense. And there was at least one judge who said this was a violation of the Fifth Amendment. Uh, that's gone. The Thompson memo is gone. We've now, I think, had two reforms. What's the current state of, of, of that and your views? Well, those provisions were changed in response to uh, the prosecutions of a number of former employees of KPMG and Judge Lewis Kaplan in New York issued a series of opinions, which are extremely interesting for me because in the course of those hearings and those opinions, he aired a lot of the negotiations that uh, that led up to the deferred prosecution. We know a lot more about how that deferred prosecution agreement was negotiated than we normally do. So there's a lot more transparency there, but the uh, the judge basically said you can't, you know, in that, I mean, companies absolutely can decide in, as a matter of policy, do we want to pay for our employees' lawyers if they get prosecuted or not? We can fire our employees, we cannot pay for their lawyers, that's a choice. But what the judge concluded in that case was that in the past, KPMG had always paid such expenses for its employees, and only because prosecutors had strongly pushed them into it, did they hang these employees out to dry? And that obviously puts employees in a horrible bind. The, the, the court concluded there that the you know, normally you would think of the company and prosecutors as being adversaries and not on the same side. The court concluded that they were actually on the same side and, and there was a government uh, Fifth Amendment triggered state action type right. Uh, the Department of Justice immediately changed lots of language in its organizational prosecution memo uh, they are no longer to bring up the subject of whether employees are being paid fees or not. And so that language has changed. Uh, the underlying problem that employees are caught in a terrible bind where the company is telling them, look, you need to talk, we're doing an investigation, or you're fired. Uh, and in fact, we'd like you to talk to prosecutors. Or if you don't, we'll, we'll, we'll send the notes of whatever you say. We'll, we'll give those to prosecutors because that's our privilege to waive or not. Uh, that, that problem, that underlying problem, is still remains with us. It's an inherent problem in the area. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I do think there have been some positive salutary fixes in terms of, of these areas. The attorney-client privilege, work product privilege areas have been substantially improved. When I started writing about this you know, back in 2010, um, there was still a lot of, of consternation about it. It was just trying to see how the sort of succession of memos, the, the first memo was the Holder memo really back back in the Clinton administration, and then there have been a succession of memos since. I, the, the Larry Thompson's is the most uh, prominent or known of those. but. But um, but I do think there's been significant uh, improvement there. The, the the criminal defense bar was very aggressive on this. I think lawyers kind of get this. The you know the lawyers get that the attorney-client privilege thing is, is a real issue. They they're less worried about oh what's our oversight going to do to 
um, the marketing plans abroad. Oh, what's the what's the impact of, of depriving financial capital in Angola? You know, they, they, they're less good at thinking about that. They're pretty good at thinking about things like attorney-client privilege, which is why I think it's, it has been improved. I'm going to go move to the audience Q&A. We do have a few rules. Please wait to be called on. Wait for a microphone so that people who will be watching this live cast or on C-SPAN can hear you. Please identify yourself in any institutional affiliation, and please actually ask a question. So I'll start with Roger. <laughs> yes, I'm Roger Pilon with the Cato Institute. And a couple of uh, uh, comments for Professor Garrett to respond to, please, uh, stemming from um, Jim Copeland's uh, commentary. Um, if uh, criminal prosecution uh, is what we're really after here uh, and to prevent these kinds of alleged wrongs, it would seem to me that uh, we would want to pierce the corporate veil and go after the people who are actually committing crimes since corporations per se do not commit crimes, people do. Um, and the fact that uh, we don't do that suggests that uh, shakedown may be the uh, uh, ultimate issue here more than prosecution. And that brings me to the second point, that it's uh, to exacerbate that, it's prosecution over um, events that may be dubiously crimes, as in the off-label uh, in the pharmaceutical situation here, or in the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. That act has always struck me as dubious because it's hard to identify what the wrong is. You've got here a prosecution of giving bribes, uh, and in many parts of the world, uh, that's just how you do business. Either you pay the person off or you don't get the business. And the wrong, it seems to me, is the bribe taker or uh, requester vis-a-vis uh, -vis his principal, not vis-a-vis -vis the corporation. Uh, to put it differently, I've always thought that in the Garden of Eden, the uh, snake got a bum rap. Uh, the problem was with Eve <laughs> and with Adam, not with the snake. So perhaps you could respond. Well, thank you. Those are, those are great questions. Um, like I talk about in the book, in these corporate cases, employees often don't get prosecuted. More often than not, they don't get prosecuted. Now, to be sure, there are you know, thousands and thousands of fraud cases, for example, brought every year, and no corporation is prosecuted. And so presumably, you know, a lot of fraud cases occur in some kind of a business setting, and presumably in those cases, the employer isn't being blamed. Uh, but the Department of Justice has long said our first priority is targeting individuals, and that doesn't seem to be happening in these cases where a corporation is being prosecuted solely for the acts of its employees, and yet no employees are ultimately held responsible. Whether we'll see that pattern change over the years, who knows? Anecdotally, we've been hearing some things about prosecutors being uh, firmer in their request that information about employee conduct be provided by the company. But you would think in these cases, of all cases, it would be particularly easy to prove who did what, where you have the cooperation of the company, you have access to documents and emails that you don't in lots of run-of-the-mill criminal investigations. Whether some laws like the FCPA are a uh, good idea as a matter of public policy or not, uh, that's, that's a moral or ethical or business question, not, not really my, my subject, but to be sure, under domestic bribery law, normally you focus on the person paying the bribes. The FCPA is not a normal bribery provision. 
uh, and that you absolutely are not focusing on the foreign officials demanding bribes. You're only focusing on, uh, you, you think that, that the public corruption aspect would be the still more important. Uh, one thing we have seen, though, which seems to explain the, the sudden prominence of the FCPA is that more other countries around the world, because of a treaty entered in the late 90s, have signed on to international norms against foreign bribery. Whether that makes you feel better about these cases or not, maybe it doesn't. But for example, uh, until Germany signed that OECD convention, uh, foreign bribery was legal in Germany, and a company like Siemens would have written off on its taxes the bribe money that it was paying around the world. Siemens was not prosecuted for foreign bribery in the US when it was legal in Germany. It was only once other first world countries basically got on the boat that US prosecutors felt comfortable in demanding that kind of accountability. And so Siemens is prosecuted you know, quite some time after Germany changed its law in response to that treaty. Now, th that still doesn't answer the question whether you think that these foreign bribery prosecutions are a good idea, whether they're good at actually fighting corruption, whether they're good for business. Uh, those, those are hard questions. Uh, th but the explanation for the sudden rise in them, I think, has to do with the fact that US prosecutors were more comfortable holding uh, other countries, companies accountable after these treaties were signed, and, and many of the biggest cases have involved foreign companies with this rationale of leveling the playing field so that US companies aren't disadvantaged by their foreign competitors that are getting these deals through bribes. And Ted? Sure, yeah, I mean, I, I think, Roger, those are great questions. I mean, I, I wouldn't go so far as, 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 as shakedown, per se. I mean, because the, 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 the public choice incentive problems notwithstanding, um, I mean, I think most of these prosecutors are, are, are doing what they, they they see something that's wrong. They think it's wrong or it's, it's at least against the law they're, they're trying to uh, enforce. I do think there are problems. I think the problems when, when they're able to, to basically become appropriators without Congress, I think that that creates some significant incentive problems there. Um, I also think that that some of the substantive issues uh, that, that you know, Professor Garrett is, is calls more in the abolitionist uh, boat, but I mean, I think some of the substantive issues prevent that sort of veil piercing you're talking about. So, um, when you've got a, a a sanction of debarment out there or exclusion out there, where you're going to, I mean, let's be clear what this is. This means that the company is not going to be able to do business with the U.S. government or get reimbursed. Well, if you're a pharmaceutical company and you're not going to get reimbursed uh, for, for, for drugs that are paid for by the U.S. government, you've got a problem. If you're a defense contractor and you're not going to get, uh, be able to contract with the U.S. government, you've got a problem. So these sanctions are so huge uh, that the companies are, are basically forced to the bargaining table. And then the flip side is that the, comp the liability standards are, are so loose that uh, no matter – a compliance defense – you know, who cares, right? I mean, they, they say they consider it, but you don't have an actual affirmative defense, compliance defense uh, under the law. You also can be held accountable for low-level employees. Now, this is very different than the rule in, in most other countries around the world. So um, you always have the, what, what, what he talks about, the ostrich problems. You always got the head in the sand problem. You do have to worry, you know, what, what, what if the, the, the corporations just organize in a way where the, the top people are just always avoiding it you know this is sort of you know the mafia the guy the guys who are out there the hitmen are getting caught but you're never going to get the don you know i, I mean I, I get that concern but 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 the answer that that that, that you know the prosecutors have come up with that the justice department's come up with is 
we're going to become super regulators of the company, stick people inside it, tell you how to change all your practices of how you do business, um, and not prosecute any individuals for crimes. That, that seems like really strange if what you're talking about is the need for criminal law. Because um, you can do, you can, you know, it's just, it's, just it's, it's, it's a really weird mechanism. Professor? Well, we are the only country in the world that has this strict liability criminal standard for, uh, for, for corporations. Uh, and uh, I'll just actually interrupt here. In an earlier article, you called it an example of American exceptionalism. American exceptionalism. Maybe that it's changing. So some countries are, are, have been on the receiving end of enough of these prosecutions that they are now uh, changing some of their corporate criminal standards. Uh, Germany is considering corporate crime legislation. I've been in touch with some academics and uh, prosecutors there that are thinking about drafting a statute. Uh, although in some ways, uh, you know, one of, one of Jim's great points just now was that the, the real threat to a company isn't having a criminal record. Arthur Anderson went out of business, but not because it was the formality of being convicted or the $500,000 fine it paid. That didn't matter. It's really the civil collateral consequence, suspension and debarment, that is so threatening to companies. In this last year, we've seen Eric Holder say, there is no such thing as too big to jail, so maybe I should have canceled the book, uh, because, <laughs> because, because a couple of banks have now pleaded guilty. But the reason they could plead guilty was because they had worked out with regulators that there would be no loss of charter, there wouldn't be that collateral consequence of the conviction. You know, it doesn't matter what you call the agreement, so long as we're not going to lose our charter as a bank, that's, that's what matters to us as a, as a bank. Um, and so there, it's not something I talk about enough in the book, really, and it's not something that enough is known about. The procedures for suspension and debarment and the standards can be extreme, extremely vague. And actually, prosecutors aren't always firmly in control of that uh, process. There have been some suggestions that Congress should do something to, to clear up that area. Uh, but there, you know, there are plenty of cases, uh, including criminal cases, where collateral consequences of a conviction are really important. But it's not normally the case that the civil collateral consequence is the death penalty, whereas the, the criminal punishment might involve uh, a hefty chunk of change, but it's not really what the defendant is worried about. Next question. Yes, sir. Um, my name is Mark Wilson. I'm a retired executive living here in D.C. I have a question about one of the cases you referenced and one other that you did not. Um, On the Siemens case, you mentioned that there was a $5 million bribe for telecom business in uh, Bangladesh. Were there any derivative lawsuits from the competitors of Siemens who lost that business and lost the profits? And my other question relates to Tyco Industries. And not that I want to be an apologist for uh, Mr. Um, Kozlowski, but here's a man who was sent to jail for 25 years, and the evidence that they presented on his side was that he had the authorization of the board of directors. True or not, I don't know. Compare that to an, a, an industry, a company that is thriving, did well, and then was sued and settled for $3 billion, which I believe was the largest civil um, settlement ever, uh, for the shareholders, where the lawyers took off $600 million and returned $2.4 billion to the same shareholders they just sued. Um, compare that to Enron, where fraud was rampant, intentional, lost thousands and thousands of jobs, crippled people, and uh, the CFO of that company went to jail for, I think, 10 years. Why did, they, why did they throw the book at Kozlowski compared to Enron? Well, it said, uh, the differences in some of these cases say a lot of thing of things about 
changes over time in sentencing and also the, the complexity and sometimes inexplicable nature of federal sentencing. I mean, everyone talks about a federal case as, you know, don't make this a federal case because federal sentences are infamously severe. But the variation, particularly in fraud sentencing, is extreme. Congress has done lots of things to ramp up uh, the, the penalties for fraud, including the uh, maximums, uh, starting really in response to Enron. Uh, but when you're dealing with white-collar crime, you're going to typically be dealing with people that don't have any prior criminal record, which is one of the main considerations under the sentencing guidelines. Uh, on the other hand, one of the main considerations under the sentencing guidelines, and it's been the subject of a lot of criticism, there's a big ABA task force on this, one of the other considerations is what was the size of the loss or to victims or they gain? And so all of a sudden you're talking life sentences if you have a fraudulent scheme involving hundreds of millions of dollars and you can have economists debating, you know, was, and it could be a potential fraudulent scheme which never actually was carried out and never actually hurt victims. So large money amounts can turn a fraud sentence into a case where there might be a two or three year sentence into a case that would be a life sentence. Um, so there, there are real concerns. Judges have said lots of angry things and opinions about how, how arbitrary some of these sentencing rubrics uh, seem and how they, they don't have adequate guidance on how to handle cases involving large financial losses. So that's, that's one answer. And then questions about comparing between cases and why did one thing happen in one case and one thing happen in another. You know, also, these cases are over time, different administrations, different responses to different crises. Uh, there, there are all sorts of questions about uh, comparing treatment, especially when you're dealing with small numbers of cases and small numbers of of offenders, you might think, okay, a prosecutor's office has a lot of has priorities in place, and if they're prosecuting thousands of drug offenders every year, they can they can rate this one. Okay, this is this is someone more serious than the other 200 that we've seen so far this year. We're going to charge the maximums in this case. But when you have an office that's handling a few of these cases at any one time, it's all going to look much more arbitrary. Sir, uh, I would like to know why. My name is John Sturzak. I'm a retired patent examiner. And you talk about too big to jail, but you don't talk about the case in which this term is most often used, the cri uh, financial crisis of 2008, and the fact that hundreds of bankers were sent to jail and the uh, uh, savings and loan crisis, but not a single banker has been sent to jail in this devastation of our economy. He actually does talk about that in the book, so another reason to buy the book. <laughs> well, but, uh, um, and that's, that's a natural question because when people talk about too big to fail, they ask whether banks now, they ask whether banks now feel like they will be bailed out no matter what risks they take. And then the too big to jail criticism that Eric Holder was responding to last summer was the concern that do banks feel like they can uh, commit crimes and not be punished because they're so crucial to the economy. Uh, and you know, as, as has been commonly reported, there haven't been big bank prosecutions since the crisis. There have been civil fraud cases brought against major banks. Uh, we're now starting to see quite a few major Wall Street and international banks that have been prosecuted more than once in the last few years. Credit Suisse, maybe is up to three. Uh, and then there's the question, okay, if you have corporate recidivists and each time they're receiving a non-prosecution agreement or a deferred prosecution agreement, maybe they aren't recidivists, they don't have a criminal record. And, and something clearly isn't working in those agreements, even if they say, look, well, the, this time it's a different trading desk. This time it's currency. And lo the last time it was LIBOR, it was different people. Uh, it, it does seem like some of the accountability is missing. And I think people are right to be concerned that these deals aren't having the in, in, intended effect on, on major financial institutions that we should all 
care a lot about after the financial crisis. On the question, why weren't particular bankers at particular banks prosecuted for fraud? It, it's really hard to know from the outside. You know, the, the, the line that we have tended to hear from Department of Justice, it has to do with the difficulty of proving intent within complicated institutions, whether that's the reason or whether it's other concerns like the feds are in the process of bailing out those very institutions during the relevant time period, I don't know. The savings and loan cases were somewhat different, where though in some, many of those cases you had evidence that executives of savings and loans were, were themselves profiting and seizing money from their own banks. Uh, that, that's the kind of avarice which were in, in the type of conduct where it's much easier to show intent and much easier to show a crime. You know, looting your own bank, that's, that, 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 that's an a, a easier case for prosecutors to explain to a jury. And then complicated default swaps where risks were being borne by all sorts of different players ac across all sorts of different financial institutions. So I can see why the, the savings and loan cases uh, uh, turned out very differently than, the, than the, the relative lack of cases after this most recent crisis. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with what Professor Goethe said, and it's, it's, um, it's not as if there haven't been financial people getting prosecuted, individuals. They're getting prosecuted for insider trading, which doesn't have anything to do with the financial crisis, but, but, but I do think it's sort of illustrative because those are easier cases to make, and we don't want to criminalize negligence or mistakes. So I, I do think that's an important principle that, that, that uh, we have a I, I'm a critic of strict liability crimes in all sorts of contexts. I was yesterday, I was testifying in Columbus, Ohio, about trying to revivify their mens rea standards under state law there. So, I mean, I, I don't think we want to mess up, put people in jail for messing up where there wasn't knowing fraud. And so those proof standards actually do matter. Um, so that's not to say there haven't been individuals that should have been put in jail after this. I, don't get me wrong. And I, I tend to think that this whole DPA, NPA architecture is part of the problem and part of the reason why we haven't seen that, uh, because they're, they're, they're probably, in many cases, were clear fraudulent actions where you could, where you could establish a mens rea or intent uh, requirement. That being said, in some cases, these were just mistakes. If, if the entire market's mispricing something, um, that, that's probably a mistake. And, and, and that's the curious thing here is oftentimes you see all the, all the major entities are doing things the same way. Um, that's, that's, that, that tells you something about what's going on. Now, now, it could be that, oh, one person's being a fraudster and to keep up everyone else has got to be a fraudster. And in some cases, that's true. Um, but 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 it's these cases are hard to make and 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 prosecute. It's it's a lot, it's easy to get a DPA if you've got some evidence because the corporations are going to cut that deal. And if insider trading, if you've had a wiretap and you've got people sitting there and, and getting inside information on the phone, you can make that case. It's much harder to make some of these other ones. So uh, here's a quick question: We're talking about criminalizing mistakes in the banking especially the money, anti-money laundering cases, it seems that most of these violations are a failure to properly detect someone else's criminal wrongdoing. So the example you give in the book is JP Morgan not catching Bernie Madoff. And they got, I think you said 1.7 billion was the penalty for that. Is there any sort of correlation between not catching someone else's crime and $1.7 billion? Yeah, I talked more about the HSBC case where it seemed like there was something much more systemic. And it did sound like... I didn't use that example. Oh, right. And, and it did sound like, actually, when you, when you read the, especially the agreements with regulators in that case, that it wasn't just about the one failure to, to catch funny business involving the Madoff Ponzi scheme, that they thought that there was just a pervasive 
lack of attention to red flags at J.P. Morgan. Um, but that is another example of too big to jail, right? No bank will be charged with money laundering because that requires the institution of charter revocation proceedings and destroying banks is usually not a good idea. Uh, and it's not something that prosecutors want to do. And so banks are charged with Bank Secrecy Act violations, which involve more of a recklessness and inattention to red flags. And of course, any bank may be generating hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of red flag transactions every year. And uh, maybe it was an extreme situation at a place like HSBC, where they said they had less than a 100 people who were supposed to look at all of that. And the compliance officers were kept telling their supervisors, help, you know, we, we can't do this job. Seems like there may be transactions going to, to drug cartels and terrorists, but we don't have the resources to follow up on it. What are we supposed to do? Uh, but then again, that was a case where there was a deferred prosecution agreement. And you'd think the statement of facts is describing people who are saying our supervisors are telling us not to do compliance. No individuals were held accountable. Um, and now, maybe the bank has shaped things up, and it's a good result, to, and the, the money is no longer flowing to the drug cartels and sanctioned regimes around the world. I, I hope that that's true, but of course we have no way of knowing because it's a deferred prosecution agreement. Questions? Yes, thank you, uh, Paul Kaminar. I'm an attorney here in town, and um, uh, I'm involved in a uh, case before the 11th Circuit right now, United States versus Clay, which grew out of a deferred prosecution agreement. And I think uh, I'd like to and comment on how the arbitrariness of this uh, is, is rampant here, where the company WellCare was uh, raided by 200 FBI agents in Florida for Medicaid fraud. They quickly uh, agreed to a DPA and through the CEO, the CFO, and the general counsel under the bus. Um, this is one of the few cases, uh, Professor Garrett, where the employees were uh, attempted prosecuted. And it was an accounting issue. It's purely regulatory. Um, uh, they argued that their way they counted the uh, payments were, were reasonable. Jury came back deadlocked. They didn't see a crime. Judge said, come back with something. They came back, acquitted the executives of almost everything except one or two counts. That's before the 11th Circuit. So uh, what I'm getting at is there seems to be arbitrariness in terms of both uh, uh, the use of the DPAs uh, and, and the non-prosecution agreements as well as going after uh, uh, executives where it's a highly regulatory field where, where it's, they should employ civil and administrative remedies, which even the own guidelines of the Justice Department said they should do. There's a separate issue that we have so many of these regulatory crimes where it's a, the crime is a willful violation of whatever the family of statutes is. Uh, you know, more than ha half of our, of course, it's not unique to the corporate context at all. More than half of our federal criminal justice system is now immigration prosecutions, which in you know, no country is our immigration violations a crime. Uh, that's half of the individuals prosecuted every year. It involves very different politics than, than white collar crime. Uh, but, you know, we have mass processing centers at the border to take hundreds of guilty pleas a day from people who have violated, re-entered the country illegally, violating immigration regulations. Not a crime most places, it's a crime here. We're comfortable with convicting tens of thousands of people a year for regulatory violations. Um, and uh, that's something that Congress has been doing since before the New Deal. It hasn't necessarily accelerated in recent years. It's been a feature of federal criminal law for a long time. Um, but it, it certainly also means that if you're going to turn a violation of a regulation into a crime, there better be a real mens rea attached to it. And of course, 
Federal criminal law is notorious. I just finished teaching federal criminal law. It's notorious for having ill-defined sort of intermediate mens rea uh, without a lot of, of teeth to it. Now, whether Congress is going to do anything about this, Congress normally just passes more federal crimes and doesn't clean up the ones that exist. Uh, the only thing that Congress normally does is when the Supreme Court actually does something to moderate the interpretation of some mens rea standard, Congress comes back and, and makes the mens rea still more easy for prosecutors to show. So that's that's the dynamic we have. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and uh, certainly a point of agreement between me and Professor Garrett is there's, there's lots of areas of the criminal law that are messed up outside this one. Um, yeah, I, I, I but 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 I mean, I I certainly think when it comes to immigration, drug law, there's 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 lots of, of, of reforms that, that we need to consider uh, as well. Um, in other areas, but 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 I mean I think that that's fundamentally the problem. I mean that being said, I don't think that the mens rea requirement there is a, is a hard to infer. I mean, and and if you're talking about um, most of the illegal narcotics or, or or people coming in across the border, at least the ones who aren't children. Uh, you know, there's there's a knowledge that they're they're that, that they're breaking a law now that whether that should be criminal or not how we should treat that totally different totally different issue, uh, but when you're talking about the vast expanse of of the U.S. regulatory code, um, it's it's very very difficult and and where this really comes into play a lot uh, as as we've gone more and more and more in this direction and this is a little broader than just the DPA NPA thing is is you know how is a small business supposed to act? Mm -hmm. I mean, every every business is committing federal crimes daily. Every big business, for sure. I mean, so so of course there's recidivism. I mean, I mean, Harvey Silvergate wrote this great book, Three Felonies a Day, about the the federal criminal code. I mean, we're all committing crimes every day without knowing it. Uh, if you're a big business, you're committing lots of crimes every day, and it doesn't matter what compliance program you do because the the code, when you've got over four thousand statutory crimes and over three hundred thousand regulatory crimes, there is no way to comply. Now, if you're a big business and you can put in these big compliance programs and compliance officers and put in all these teams of people. Uh, you've got a better chance at, at ferreting out noncompliance. If you're a small business, what are you supposed to do? So, so this overarching, massive federal criminal law is, is, is making it much tougher for smaller and mid-sized businesses to, to actually do business without you know, risking serious potential jail time for individuals were, were, were they to, to run afoul of the law, even if it's unknowing. And there's also, just to add a little note to that, you know, if you look down my my resource websites, right, it's the big companies that can negotiate the deferred and non-prosecution right. agreements, the public companies. They can promise that they'll shape up compliance. If you look down my list of convicted companies, it's a, a lot of, there's some companies like Siemens, but it's a lot of small mom and pop companies, uh, which are not getting the benefit of leniency, and they can't show that they're going to do compliance. They're probably put out of business by the fact of being prosecuted. Uh, and so there's unequal treatment even within corporate prosecutions in terms of the type of deals that can be negotiated. I'm Joel Mandelman. I'm also an attorney here in town. Coming back to the bribery situations, do you have any data on what percentage of these bribery cases are really the company was a victim of extortion? It's not, here's a million dollars, give me the contract. It's, you got the contract, now give me a million dollars and nothing's ever going to happen with it. And the company is really being victimized by corrupt foreign officials that U.S. prosecutors can never touch. And, and, and 
some of these cases we hear in the statement of facts that there were, I mean, in, in, in any case where a company is paying bribes, unless it's really aggressively trying to pay bribes, there's going to be a, a demand made on them. And so what, what counts as extortion in that context is hard to say. I mean, under, under domestic law, extortion is inferred from someone's office. And so the word extortion doesn't really have any particular meaning uh, exactly domestically. Extortion doesn't mean putting a gun to someone's head and saying, um, I want more money. It means you're a public official and you're making clear that you want some money. And so uh, the word extortion gets used in these cases and has been raised in response to FCPA prosecutions. And I'm not sure it's a word that means anything. That said, and it's quite clear in some of these cases that companies didn't want to pay bribes. They were dragged into it. And uh, plenty of these companies openly reported what, what happened to U.S. prosecutors and, and turned themselves in. It's not like U.S. prosecutors have much ability to uncover payments to foreign officials in other countries unless someone tells them it happened. We can't really investigate these things around the globe. And so it's companies that didn't want to do it, that reported that they did it and came clean uh, and are now, now paying a price for it, um, often a discounted price because of their reporting and their cooperation. As a technical matter, I think grease payments or facilitation, once the contract's already been won, aren't FCPA violations. But they have to be minor, minor. in some okay. way. It's, it's so a million dollars isn't minor. That's prob okay. probably not. It's it's the, the, the real answer there is there nobody knows, no right? Knows, because right. you know it's a safe harbor, but but it's not one that it's 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 easy for a company to try to be the test case for. So and because individuals are rarely prosecuted, you know we 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 just don't know. But you're also not going to have great records of this because. You know, as a legal matter, it, it doesn't matter, right? So, so it's not as if the company can sit there and say, "Oh, well, they asked for it." I mean, that, that's not gonna that's not gonna do them any good. So, so you're not gonna really see these in terms of these fact patterns. I mean, it, it, it it's a symbiosis there. I mean, I think the goal of the FCPA is a good goal, actually, to try to. We don't we don't want bribery. We don't want bribery in this country. I think it's a it's a good thing not to be able to bribe officials for contracts and. Um, you know, the, 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 and, and we don't want the, the, the folks that are the most efficient bribers to be the ones that win in, the, in, 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 in various business lines. So trying to police that in some way, uh, you know, I, I think it's a good goal. But how you do it matters, right? About 10 minutes left, yeah. The man with the camera. <laughs> Try to be brief. Robert Charetta with International Investor. I wonder, since you're getting a database of hundreds of cases now, are you starting to see any country biases yet? I, wa I, I wonder and suspect, for example, that those companies that are careful about their financial reporting, record keeping, and documentation could be unfairly uh, you know, targeted by prosecutors who think that's an easier case to build than a company that's reporting in Chinese for example, and uh, perhaps has very obscure documents and whose, whose chief officials might be difficult to locate and prosecute. It's hard to say. It's small enough numbers of cases, limited to the FCPA area at least, uh, that you know, it's sort of like reading the tea leaves. You actually did, you didn't see that many FCPA ca cases involving companies or conduct in China until the last few years. Uh, but part of it is another aspect of how the, the ad hoc sort of nature of these, uh, the cases prosecutors bring are the, often the ones that get reported to them. 
the countries where these may be investigated or come to light may tend to be the more first world countries that have signed on to the treaty and where prosecutors feel comfortable going after the multinational company that it really should be following the laws of its country that prohibit bribery, even if the bribes themselves were paid in more third world countries where uh, those rules aren't particularly followed. Um, and so there, there's so much arbitrariness. Does the case get reported to prosecutors? Does the company self-report? Is it a OECD country? There's even more randomness in that FCPA cases really have three paths or four paths. Uh, some of the cases are just brought by the SEC as purely civil cases. Uh, the fines tend to be lower in those cases, uh, and there's a fair number that are simply brought by the SEC. Uh, prosecutors seem to bring plenty of the cases as non-prosecution agreements, deferred prosecution agreements, but they also bring some of them as plea agreements, like in the Siemens case. And I haven't been able to detect any rhyme or reason into why some companies have to plead guilty, why some companies get a deferred or non-prosecution agreement. There's no, there are, there are a lot of memos here on, on how, what factors you're supposed to consider when you prosecute companies, but there's no guidance on, you know, why should some companies get convicted and some not. And in the FCPA area, you really see cases take completely different paths. Maybe, maybe the group of prosecutors at Maine Justice that bring those cases have some internal explanation that they haven't told us yet, but they haven't told us yet. I mean, they, they put out a long document on this, but I'm still hey. befuddled. So, I, <laughs> so uh, we have about five, 10 minutes left. Uh, one thing that hasn't come up a lot is the role that external monitors play in this. I wonder if you could talk about that, uh, your respective thoughts mainly. How do we get more uh, Theo Weigels and less John Ashcrofts? Yes, I, I, was, I was there at the hearings when John Ashcroft testified in the House to, to explain uh, his unusual, uh, he was being paid, you know, three quarters of a million a month, sort of a, a, a flat rate, and then there might be additional expenses. Uh, that said, the money that these monitors, and it's a, it can be, it's great work if you can get it. Uh, <laughs> the uh, yeah, the, the, the money that they are paid may be a drop in the bucket compared to uh, the fines that the company is paying. And you know, some companies like Siemens have said that the work of these monitors is really important, that they needed outside independent expertise to re reform their compliance. I do talk about in the book how most of these monitors are, are former prosecutors, and whether a former prosecutor is necessarily the person most expert in how to do compliance in a particular industry, I have some doubts. Um, the, in response to those hearings involving some of the monitors that Chris Christie appointed, uh, there was a heavy New Jersey focus to those hearings. I was just the academic. I was, I was the academic window dressing, I guess, but I enjoyed participating. <laughs> uh, the, the department did, uh, I think on the eve of some of the hearings, introduce new rules for appointment of monitors, but it's still basically an internal decision. We'll do more internal oversight over monitor selection at our offices. Uh, I, I think judges should pick the monitors. There should be someone impartial picking the monitor that is best. I do think uh, that there is some reason sometimes to think that a company doesn't have the right skills to do compliance on its own, and having someone independent watching over that would be quite useful. I'm kind of surprised that if prosecutors are supposedly going after the companies that have the biggest and most systemic compliance failures, that's why we're bringing the case against the company and not just the employees, why so few of these cases involve monitors. Or, or requirements that compliance be, be audited. Uh, I guess the one positive change that we have seen in the last few years is that the agreements have tended to include much more detail, saying this is what the monitor is supposed to do. This is the work plan. The monitor doesn't just have free reign to just ask the company to do whatever. Uh, much sort of more clear definition of what the monitor's role is, 
what should happen if the company has a complaint about the monitor overreaching. And I think that those kind of ground rules really are a, a, a useful development that we've seen in the last few years. So that's, that's my note of optimism. I hope that's right. I mean, I, I, I do think there's been some effort to, to, to be a little more systemic about this. I, I, that, that free reign approach is what bothers me. I mean, I, I, most of all, I, I don't think it's, it's an inherently problematic to, to sort of say we need a, a corporate monitor in these sorts of cases. I mean, but that being said, what you're doing is, is if the prosecutor gets to, to pick someone that the company pays for to look over their shoulder who reports to the prosecutor, the judge is completely out of the loop on this. I mean, that's a really odd process. Uh, and and I, I would have to think there'd be a, a good way uh, to clean that process up. And, and, and that's even aside from potential you know, conflicts of interest or hiring your buddy or and sometimes the, the, the buddy may be the best guy. I mean, in the in the civil agreement with Citigroup, the former deputy attorney general holders deputy is a buddy might be the best guy. Right. I mean, we don't know that. But 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 it is a, a very large, lucrative, well-paying gig uh, for someone who may have been a former prosecutor. And it, 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 if anything, it potentially exacerbates this whole agency, uh, rather the public choice problem that, that, that I was talking about in terms of what's going through the young DOJ prosecutor's mind here. But, but, but clearly the expertise one is a valid one. If a, if a company's had a lot of problems, uh, you know, they, their internal teams probably had some problems. I can see why these things get negotiated in, but, but, but it's, it's sort of the freeform nature of it that, that's troublesome. I, I do think they're making some efforts to try to, to try to improve this, though. Last questions? Okay. I'd like to thank you all for coming. There will be a lunch following this. It's on the second floor in the George M. Yeager Conference Center, if you go up the spiral staircase. Uh, there's also restrooms there along the yellow wall. Uh, thank you, and let's thank our guests. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Dave. Thank you very much.